What's up, guys? This is William, your host. Uh, welcome back today to World of Wally. Our episode today, I have a guest coming in today. The gentleman's name is Mr. Ed Cressy. Uh, Ed's a pretty interesting guy. Uh, he's perhaps the only person who was ever once arrested by the FBI and then went on to receive a community service award from the director of the FBI. Now, Ed's a guy, he had plenty of opportunities in life. He was college-educated. Ed- he had a career with Genentech which was named Fortune Magazine's number one best company to work for. He had home ownership in San Francisco, California. Everything seemed to be going great. Yet he threw that all away and much more uh, to two decades of drug addiction. He spent months in jail and years in destitution. Um, His final 11 devastating years of addiction to methamphetamines actually resulted in harrowing psychosis, including extreme paranoia, centered around the FBI. After getting clean in 2008, he discovered, just because you're done with drugs doesn't mean drugs are done with you, he said. He continued to battle severe mental health challenges, but fortunately, amazing individuals inspired him to pursue a path of self-improvement, spirituality, and service to others. And in 2019, FBI Director Christopher Wray recognized him with his Director's Community Leadership Award. Guys, his inspiring transformation is the subject of a, a book that he's got called My Addiction and Recovery. Just because you're done with drugs doesn't mean drugs are done with you. Uh, it was a, it was actually uh, released April of 2020, and uh, his articles have appeared in all kinds of places like the Washington Post, San Francisco Chronicle, and Vox. Uh, he's, all, he's also appeared on stage for The Moth. Uh, he volunteers his time for the FBI and police departments in his hometown of San Francisco, helping outreach communities affected by incarceration and addiction. He spends days and weekends in California state prisons, volunteering for organizations that deliver training in entrepreneurship and employment for currently and formerly incarcerated men and women. He also leads a weekly Toastmaster-style meeting in a women's unit of the San Francisco County Jail. Guys, this guy, the longer I talked to him, the more intrigued and impressed I was with where he was, the point he got to, his absolute rock bottom, and now where he's at now. So guys, after the break, as soon as we get back, today's episode, Right Said Ed, Cressy and the FBI. After the break, guys, we'll be right back. Hey guys, this is William with World of Wally. If you guys played the third tree in your third grade play, or if you played Hamlet in your college production, if you think you're a rising star in the industry, or you want to be the rising star in an industry, or you're a podcaster looking for a rising star in the industry, check out Steve Joyner, guys, SJ Network. You can reach him at stevesjnetwork at gmail.com. He will put you together with the people that you need to be successful. So remember, guys, Steve, SJNetwork at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hey, guys, quick shout out to Timothy O. Davis of Ridgewood Recording Studios. His studio offers a full line of music production ranging from song demos and singles to fully produced albums. He focuses on excellence at every level of the recording and production process and will work with you for your project specific needs. 
So remember, guys, Timothy O. Davis. Reach out to him at timothydavis.org front slash Ridgewood Studios. All right, guys, welcome back from the break. And as promised today, my guest, Mr. Ed Cressy. Ed, how are you doing today? William, I'm doing great today. Thanks so much for having me. Well, guys, uh, for all my listeners, Ed has a uh, a pretty wild story. And I'm not just talking about, you know, we hear wild stories come off the West Coast all the time. This guy has a very unique, crazy wild story. And I want to share it with you guys today. Um, Ed, first of all, for us to kind of get the full um, ramifications of actually what went on in your past, first we got to kind of established where you got started. Give us a little bit of your background, like back your upbringing, like when you were a young guy, uh, you, you were raised in a pretty, um, I'm not going to say privileged, but you, you, you had all the things you needed to be successful earlier in life um, in, you know, in comparison to a lot of folks. So kind of start us, take us back to when you were a young guy and kind of bring us to the point to where the wheels kind of came off and then we'll, we'll jump in with both feet at that point. Yeah, sounds good. William, I had so many advantages growing up. I, I, I was, I, I lived out in an idyllic wooded part of Massachusetts, small town. There's a little swimming hole right down the street where my mom would take my youngest sister and I to splash on the sunlit sandy shores. You know, there's a big hill behind my house where we'd go tobogganing in the winter time and catching bullfrogs and snakes in the summer. You know, just so many things uh, that make for a perfect childhood. What happened was, one thing that happened was those things that served me so well when I was a little kid, Mm-hmm. meaning my imagination, reading. I love to read. I would go to the library and come home with stacks of books, almost too high to see over, you know. <laughs> it's yeah. almost comical. Right. The other things, too, I was just very uh, sensitive as a kid. When I got to school, I used to cry quite easily when the teachers yelled or when the bus drivers yelled. Another thing, I was very uncoordinated. Couldn't really compete in gym class or on the sporting team. Now, where I went to school, reading, crying, and being uncoordinated, that <laughs> was not, you know, exactly a campaign platform yeah. to run the last president. The point is, from that idyllic childhood came a, a teenage years where I felt very ostracized. I felt bullied, felt like I didn't fit in. I couldn't come up with two words to say to the popular girl at the high school locker next to mine. You know, I just really didn't fit in. Where that led to was one of the first ways I did feel like I could fit in was drinking, drinking alcohol. You know, I was 14 years old at my aunt's wedding at the reception in Brooklyn, New York. You know, so here I am, some some small town kid in the big city for the first time, surrounded by loving relatives, many of whom I'd never met before. It's kind of thrust into it all. And all of a sudden, in the middle of all that, there's my cousin, who's this worldly kid from Brooklyn. You know, everything that I wasn't, he was. You know, he just had the, the lingo and the jokes and uh, the confidence. 
he also had a bottle of champagne <laughs> that he he purloined from the wedding reception. He had a friend who lived downstairs because the wedding reception was in an apartment. Mm -hmm. My cousin sneaks me off to his friend's apartment. We got the champagne. We got a porno movie. And boom, all of a sudden, I feel like I fit in. You know, one of the first times as a young adult, I, I feel like a, a valuable part of my surroundings. My jokes get laughter. My remarks get agreement. I'm just contributing to the world around me, or so I feel. It was that bottle of champagne, you know, 14 years old, getting drunk for the first time. There began the stirrings of association between intoxication and feelings of belonging, feelings of fitting in. Jumping forward through, through my teenage years at 16, I become a very heavy drinker. 17 years old, I'm in college early. I, I left high school a year early to start college. I, in college, graduation to cocaine, ecstasy, speed, really anything I could get my hands on. Anything that would allow me to take me out of myself. Because all along, I'm still that bully kid in my mind. I'm still the kid who wouldn't stick up to him for himself on the, on the junior high or, or the, the grade school playgrounds. Drinking was a way to escape, getting wasted on drugs. In college, I'd become a binge user. I'd just consume huge amounts of alcohol, cocaine, anything to take me out of myself. It was the, the feeling of being high that I liked. Even more so than that was the feeling that I was a different person. You know, all of a sudden I have the confidence to, to, to score drugs. I, I can get access to these forbidden worlds, like, like the fantasy worlds I would read about when I was a kid. Right. All of a sudden I'm someone who's tough enough to flaunt the rules and to defy authority and even the law in my drug consumption. Where, where I was a cowardly kid, now all of a sudden I'm projecting that image. It was a fake image, but with the drugs I could project that image of being tough and of being worldly. All the things I really wasn't, the drug culture and the drug community allowed me to, to project. To, to flash forward ahead, for, for your audience, if you understand one thing about drug addiction, understand that drugs, for, for people like me who sink into addiction, drugs are usually not our problem. Drugs are our attempt at a solution. For me, my problems are lack of confidence. I never, all, all along my dream had been to be a writer. Since I was a little kid bringing stacks of books home from the library, I had a dream to be a writer, but I never pursued my dream. I lacked confidence, I lacked discipline. Those were my problems. Those are my problems. My, I hated myself is what it boils down. My solutions were drugs. Okay. Drugs work as a solution. That's the insidious thing. With drugs, we can get the false sense of confidence. We can approach the, uh, the, the woman or, or the member of the, we can approach the person we're attracted to with a false sense of confidence and we can strike up a conversation. We, we can do these things. For me, many successes came my way. There was a career with Genentech, which is a big biotech firm out in San Francisco where I was living. Genentech was named the number one best company in America to work for by Fortune magazine. 
I worked there. Genentech treated me very, very well for the five or so years I was there. Uh, a home. I owned a home in San Francisco. Many loving relationships. I rode a big BMW motorcycle, had an incredible dog, many wonderful relationships. Somewhere along the line, methamphetamines became my drug of choice. It was 96 or so. Meth, meth became my drug of choice. Mm -hmm. In 2003, after seven years of meth addiction, snorting meth, changed to smoking meth. When meth became, when I started smoking meth, that's when psychosis set in. When I began smoking meth, soon afterwards, I began hearing disembodied voices. The FBI began surveilling me in invisible stealth bombers. Okay, so William, not really. In, in my meth psychosis delusion, right, the right. FBI was conducting, yeah. So I, and, and, you know, I started smashing holes in my drywall and tearing apart my electronics, looking for hidden surveillance devices, my family, friends law enforcement, the police, all of them were in on this vast conspiracy against me. They were responsible for the voices I heard that threatened to torture, beat to death after kidnapping me. What finally the explanation came was that in the year 2000, in reality here, in the year 2000, I'd gone to Bangkok, Thailand. Mm -hmm. I was really into kickboxing at the time. I'd been, been an amateur kickboxer. Uh, I was never any good, but you know, I, I trained a lot, and, and right. the community community treated me very well. I was never very competitive. Uh, but what happened was when I was in Bangkok, I I had a friend. Who, I was in Bangkok training at a, this a kickboxing school. I was living and training at kickboxing school. My friend and roommate while I was there in Bangkok, we'll call him Omar. Okay, just a, a nice guy. A Muslim uh, man from of, of Middle Eastern descent from France. Turned out, years later, I I discovered that Omar had actually been one of the 9/11 hijackers. Holy cow! Okay. So William, in real, putting reality aside, my delusion. I mean, he, he. I mean, conceivably, he could have been one of the hijackers. The point is, no matter who Omar was or wasn't. It was my meth psychosis that was responsible. It was my poor decisions that were responsible for the meth psychosis that led to this belief in a vast FBI conspiracy against me because I inadvertently befriended one of the 9-11 hijackers. So here I am thinking, okay, the, the, uh, the government, the FBI believes I had something to do with 9-11 or this guy Omar was actually an undercover counter-terrorism operative and now the government's trying to silence me because I know too much about some cover-up or the government has selected me to become a top-secret undercover counter-terrorism. All, all these delusions are going around, all these conspiracies. I'm smoking more and more meth. By, by 2006, a couple of years into my into this meth psychosis, the home that I mentioned, I sold that. I spent all the money on meth, strip clubs, electronics that I destroyed looking for surveillance devices. I purchased, I don't know, two or three cars. The cars would get towed away and I would never go to pick them up because I was so deep in my conspiracy theories and my meth addiction. 
by 2007, I'd spent months in jail, nights in homeless shelters. I'd gone for months without showering or brushing my teeth. I was living in a flop house hotel that had a little sink in the corner where I would ash my cigarettes, wash my clothes, and urinate. This was my life from a guy who had been treated very well by Genentech, the number one company to work for. I didn't mention, but I also worked for Stanford University, considered by many one of the finest institutions of higher learning. Palo Alto, yeah. Yeah, in Palo Alto. Stanford treated me very, very well. Uh, so many opportunities came my way, but by 2007, I'd thrown them all away and much more. It was basically a person. So if you live in a, a city or, or a town where you, where unfortunately uh, home pe homeless people are, are struggling with whatever circumstances led them to become homeless, you might pass a person living in a tent on a sidewalk. You might pass a person who's having screaming matches with people who ain't even there. Right. You, you might wonder how, what happened to this poor individual that led to him or her in these circumstances. William, I was that person. I, I was that, I never lived in a tent, but I spent nights in homeless shelters and I was very close to long-term homelessness. So a few quick questions. First of all, <clears throat> you started off on the East Coast, I'm assuming in a pretty small town or community. Uh, the you kind are of, exactly right. The kind yeah, of place that everybody knows everybody, right? Yes, you hit the nail right uh, well then uh, you, A wonderful town called Ashburnham, Massachusetts, population well, 2000. Well, then you go off to college and you go early, so that means you got to be a pretty bright guy if you were able to enter college early. Uh, to land this this dream job that you had, you you had to be not only you know talented and qualified, but you you had to be uh, a little fortunate, and you were. You end up in San Francisco. What's I mean? Did did the the move from small town America to San Francisco, California, and all this that had been thrust upon you was that fuel for the fire, or or was this just you had gotten so deep into the addiction that you were reality and, and fantasy were just blurring itself. You know, they were blurring themselves on a daily basis. Yes. Both, both of those, both of those, uh, both what you mentioned contributed the being thrust into this state of vast freedom. Mm -hmm. And I discovered in San Francisco being the bullied, ostracized small town kid, now, all of a sudden, finding myself in the midst of this amazing city, San Francisco, that was a little too much responsibility for me to handle. The, the other part was that I did have many opportunities. I think the, the best opportunity I was ever given, I'm so grateful to my parents because they taught me to read at a very early age. In addition to that, they instilled in me a love of reading. That... Of, of the many opportunities that came my way, that's the one I think that benefited me the most and still to this day benefits me the most. And also, William, as I went on, as I turned my life around and got clean from meth, I got many opportunities to work with incarcerated persons. Mm -hmm. to, I've spent a few weekends <clears throat> volunteering in California's maximum security prisons. That and other experiences with formerly and currently incarcerated persons taught me that many of the opportunities I had and have today come from 
let's face it, the color of my skin. Right. Right. Which is which is white for since we're not right right yeah we mentioned this yeah we mentioned this before we started for my listeners that are that are listening to the episode today he's got a real pete carroll look about him so uh (laughs) i asked him did everybody out out in uh on the west coast look like pete carroll so uh so quick question for you um was was rock bottom for you was that also your aha moment or were those two different two different times two different places they were very, they were about the same. Rock bottom for me was about a one year period when I was living in that Flophouse Hotel. Some good opportunities came my way. I worked for a place called the Larry Flint's Hustler Club, which is, uh, as the name implies, a strip club in San Francisco. And to their credit, they treated me very well. They gave me a chance. I was a terrible employee. I stole money, show up drunk and high. The, the rock bottom period was around that time that the hustler club rightfully fired me there i was on welfare but i cheated welfare because i would go out and buy you'd use food stamps to buy steaks then trade the steaks to my drug dealer for meth i had spent years draining society's resources i would call the police on myself and take the police away from from their important work that they had to do I, did, I would show up to the FBI offices quite often, submitting handwritten notes saying, hey, somebody is after me, FBI. At first, I would alternately blame the FBI for being after me and then ask the <laughs> FBI for help. I, you know, I would train the court systems, the welfare systems. I was just a burden on society. That, that was my rock bottom period, along with my, my physical condition that I smoked incredible amounts of meth and cigarettes and marijuana. The aha moment came when the only clothes I owned were this filthy tuxedo. I had, I had like a daytime outfit, which was a filthy slacks and a baseball jacket and sneakers held together with duct tape. So I had that daytime outfit. And my evening wear was this grimy tuxedo from the leftover from the Larry Clint Huster Club. The aha moment came when I donned my grimy, filthy black tuxedo, went to a fancy San Francisco downtown hotel, you know, blending in <laughs> in my tux. Yeah. Found my way to a hotel ballroom where a wedding reception was taking place. Realized that in the previous few years, five couples had gotten married. Mm-hmm. Ten of my closest friends had gotten married. You know how many of those weddings William I showed up to? I don't. Zero. Zero. Not, not one. One couple had asked me to be their best man. I didn't show up to a single wedding. There in my my black tuxedo at this hotel ballroom, somewhere inside me it clicked. The the realization dawned upon me not just how much I hurt myself, how much I hurt those close to me. That was my aha moment. It was in October 2007. I haven't used methamphetamine since. Yeah, because it talks about in some of your information you provided me that you got clean in 2008. So that was that was over a decade you spent just absolutely chained to these to these uh, illegal drugs. So um, what what yeah, took you what took you? Uh, oh yeah, yeah. What we're talking about. Uh, let's see. 
Oh yeah, well we're talking about you. You actually your 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 drug of choice was methamphetamines. Now is that you spent over a decade? That was your go-to, right? You you had twenty years worth of drug use, but you had over a decade worth of just your drug of choice. You were essentially trying to kill yourself. You just didn't realize it. That's a good way to put it. Yes, I was trying to fix myself. I was trying to cure myself. Drugs were my solution. They weren't my problem. They were my attempt at a solution. Right. My problem was me. All right. So you get you get yourself. You're off the drugs. You get yourself clean. What what was the pivotal moment? Like what what did you use? What what mechanism did you use to actually get clean? God. Okay. God, a belief and a faith in a spiritual presence that to this day, despite much, much searching, I don't fully understand, yet I deeply believe in. All right, so that's o- so that's o seven o eight. Okay, you just yeah. talked about a higher power. You just talked about God, the concept yeah. of God. Yeah. Were Were you a previous believer that had just walked away from the faith, or was this something brand new to you? Brand new. I, I'm Jewish by birth, yet I had no nothing really much resembling a spiritual faith until I found the twelve steps, which instilled in me a, a, a pursuit a belief in a pursuit of spirituality i met some uh, some incredible group of people who had a meditation group their belief their spiritual beliefs kept me alive literally after i quit meth i was suicidally depressed i, I would fantasize about hurling myself from the golden gate bridge or putting my 357 in my mouth and yanking the trigger I mean, I, I did not, not want to live for years after I quit meth. Yet the meditation group I joined convinced me that for me to kill myself would result in my regressing backwards through past lifetimes. The, the point is, so it was so important to me, not just the information I received, but where it came from. Meaning, I was very fortunate that people came into my life who embodied the type of lives I wanted to lead, the type of life I wanted to lead. So if I had read in some book or saw on a TV show, hey, if you commit suicide, you'll regress through previous lifetimes. I might have thought in the page of that book or on that TV show, oh, yeah, okay, that, that makes sense, uh, or I might not have thought that. When people who live, who live lives that I wanted to lead put forth those same spiritual principles, I could gravitate towards them. I could latch onto it. I could believe in those principles myself. That's why not only did I not commit suicide, I also went on to be a community servant. I went on to serve our sisters and brothers who are or were incarcerated and turning their lives around. I went on to serve law enforcement, assisting them better serve communities affected by incarceration and addiction went on to do other things too. I'm, I'm so fortunate that amazing people showed me a path, not only of staying free from drugs, but of bringing value and meaning to the world around me, which is, which is really the point. Quit, quitting drugs, that's not a goal. That's, that's a goal, but that's not the goal. Right. Quitting drugs is a necessary step, yet the ultimate goal, at least so far as I was taught, the ultimate goal is to be of service. 
The ultimate goal is to live a meaningful life. The ultimate goal is to find spiritual pursuits. Whatever it is to the individual, it's unique to her or him. That higher purpose, that's our goal. Quitting drugs is only one step along the, along the journey. Right. Then that's what you just, the sentiment you just echoed is kind of the inspiration that your story needs to generate. That it's not, it's, this never goes away. But we, we need to be very clear here to the listeners. Addiction is not something that you can just wipe clean from a, from a chalkboard. It's there every day. So you deal with it daily. So let's talk about daily. What, as you deal with your addiction, even, you know, even though you're off the drugs, the addiction is still there. That, that, uh, codependency kind of hides under the surface. So what about, it's a day-by-day process. So what kind of daily practices do you implement to, to be able to stay in the state of mind and the place that you're at right now? My daily practices have changed and evolved over time, yet meditation remains at the core. Every morning, first thing I do when I get up is go into meditation. Nutrition, fitness are so important. Service being a service, if whatever I'm doing can somehow in some way be of service to others, maybe I'm helping others. Definitely. I'm helping myself. I call it the three S's service, self-improvement and spirituality. If whatever we do in our lives, it's one or more of those three S's then probably it's getting us in the right direction. Daily practices, form that foundation. Daily practices create a fortress so that when the inevitable storms of self-doubt, of lack of confidence, when the inevitable storms of fear and anxiety assail us as they will when we're pursuing paths of transformation, overcoming addiction is definitely a path of transformation. When the when the negativity assails us, those daily practices set the foundation. That's why it's so important to get into meditation or a spiritual practice or running or volunteering, whatever, whatever best works for you as an individual. Those are the daily practices you need to maintain. And the, the daily practices are so important. You, it, it's, it's one thing to do a, to undertake a retreat. You know, we have a spiritual retreat, we go on those for a weekend or three days, or we go on a, food, a fitness boot camp for a week, or we do uh, a, a fast for a number of, all those things are awesome. Right. They're all amazing. And, and it's really to an individual's credit for undertaking those. However, your suggestion is to take it to another level and implement something on a daily basis. When, when we can every day fast for 12 hours. I, I do, you know, I'm up to about 20 hours a day. I fast when we can meditate every day of our, our lives, whatever it is, whatever that practice may be, it is, it's when we can do it on a daily basis, that will really set the foundation that will allow us to withstand those storms that we'll encounter when we're pursuing our dreams or undertaking a challenge of the magnitude that is overcoming addiction. That's powerful words right there. All right. So, after this journey, this road that you've traveled, what was it like to actually be recognized by the director of the FBI? 
amazing testament to the second chances and the power of those second chances. I'm so grateful to the FBI and law enforcement and the women and men in law enforcement who helped me turn my life around for clearly demonstrating, setting model that second chances benefit people who receive them like me, yet second chances can also benefit people who give them just as much, if not more so. My second chances, thanks to the FBI, thanks to women and men, law enforcement, thanks to so many of our sisters and brothers who are or were incarcerated, my second chances create a ripple effect. The second chances I was given, I was able to use to do things like become a volunteer first responder, which I did for eight years serving the fire department of San Francisco. Mm -hmm. uh, the second chances allowed me to start a Toastmasters style program in a women's unit of San Francisco County Jail, coaching women to better advocate for themselves, become greater servants to their communities. It's not me who's a special person. It's not me who's some great example of service. It's the second chances. It's the people like those in the FBI, like those who, who have served time and turning their lives around. It's the second chances they gave me that really go out and benefit society. Society itself gave me a second chance. The the, the fact that the FBI recognized me as a community service servant is such a, such critical and such a, a wonderful testimony to the fact that when society gives second chances, often society gets paid back just as much, if not more. Right. That's fantastic. I, you mentioned earlier in our conversation, when you were a young boy, you aspired to be a writer, an author, and that has been realized. Because the information I have in front of me says that you had a publication date of April of 2020. And I don't know if COVID kind of knocked that off course or not. But uh, what about the book, that your, your book project you have? Tell, tell my listeners a little bit about that. It's called uh, My Addiction and Recovery. Just because you're done with drugs doesn't mean drugs are done with you. Which is, that is one of the most poignant titles I've ever heard. Because that is 1,000% that is truth is what that is. Thank you. And it's, uh, yes, it's when I quit meth, my problems in some ways were just beginning for a lot of us, again, who use drugs as a solution. When we quit drugs, it makes things worse, <laughs> at least initially it's, it's unfortunate, but it's true. When I got clean off meth, I still heard disembodied voices. I continue to experience extreme FBI paranoia. I continued, as we discussed, to have suicidal depression. After I quit meth, I got these obsessions around food and body image and sleep. All these things, many of them persisted for years and years after I got clean. Mm -hmm. The book describes that process. Readers get hope that they can overcome obstacles in their own lives. Readers of my book get faith that people they loved who are struggling can turn their lives around. Readers get a glimpse into the root causes of addiction 
and how recovery is possible. Readers see that it's possible to unify even the most polarized communities in our society, cops and those affected by incarceration. Readers get a unique, one-of-a-kind story of second chances, redemption, and the belief that it's possible, not just in my life, but the lives of others too. All right, so take just a couple of minutes before, before we get out of here and before we start sharing how we can find your book and where you can be found online and how you can be contacted. Take just a couple of minutes and share with my listeners because you might not ever get an opportunity to actually talk to anybody listening to this episode face-to-face. Share with them just, just a couple of minutes of what your, your message. If you, if you had only a minute and a half or two minutes to tell anybody in the world the, the one thing that could actually bring them from the brink like you brought yourself or, or, or like you made it back from, what would that be? Well, first of all, thank you, listeners, for staying with us for this long. If there was only one thing, without question, it would be God. Find that faith in God. Deepen your faith in God. Whatever God does or doesn't mean to you, keep reexamining, keep questioning, keep learning. For me, it was a process of reading the spiritual text. I would immerse myself in communities from the Hare Krishnas to the Hasidic Jews, you know, and everywhere in between. Uh, wonderful pastors, rabbis, priests, uh, practitioners, people from all walks of life who had or had considered their spiritual beliefs were there in their words and actions to guide me. But for your listeners, think about God, think about uh, love, karma, the universe with a capital U, whatever that spiritual presence may mean to you, focus your life and your activities around that. In the words of George Harrison, you know from the Beatles? Mm-hmm. Remember George Harrison? Oh, yeah. George Harrison said, yeah, George Harrison said, everything can wait except the search for God. Right? Everything can wait except the search for God. Mm-hmm. George Harrison was in the Beatles considered by many to be one of the greatest rock and roll bands of all time. Right. Right. But George Harrison is saying even the heights of rock and roll stardom can wait, but that search for God cannot wait. That's right. So for your listeners, whatever you're doing in your life, your family, your career, your education, your, your hobbies, your interests, all that stuff is very, very important. Make no mistake. Yet consider those things almost always can wait at least a little bit, they can wait, but that search for God cannot wait. Even if your search for God is a 10-second prayer, if your search for God is, is reading a book, if your search for God is having a conversation with a spiritual practitioner, those things cannot wait. That search for God cannot wait. This is the advice that I would put forth to your listeners or to anybody. That's powerful words, guys. All right, one last question before we share your information. Um, you have trotted through a valley of darkness. That is absolutely, uh, without a doubt, that is a fact. Are you, are you in your own mind, are you in a good place right now? I am in a beautiful place. Far from, far from perfect, yet life is a beautiful, wonderful opportunity to deepen my relationship with God, 
life is an opportunity to love more people through my actions and through my thoughts. This is definitely something I'm working on quite a bit. Recently, my life presents incredible opportunities to see challenges as beautiful ways to learn, to improve myself, to say my life is better today while not perfect. Right. To say my life is better than it was 13 years ago when I was in that hotel ballroom outside the wedding reception. Well, you met, that doesn't even begin to tell the story. Right. Um, you know, if you're struggling with addiction, if you're struggling with problems, if you're struggling with obstacles, you, you can overcome. You can get find your way to a beautiful life on the other side. It's not easy. In fact, oftentimes it's very, very challenging. But, you know, the, the last thing I will say is to, is to consider the story of the butterfly. There's, it's a story about a person hiking through the woods who encounters a butterfly. Only it's not really a butterfly. It's, it's sort of half caterpillar, half butterfly. It's emerging mm -hmm. from its cocoon. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the hiker sees this butterfly emerging from its cocoon. And the butterfly is struggling. It's struggling. It's struggling. And the hiker thinks, you know, I'm going to make things easier. I'm going to take my knife. I'm going to cut the cocoon. The hiker believes that this will really help. But in reality, it, it hurts the butterfly because it's that struggle to free itself from the cocoon that gives the butterfly's wings its strength, or their strength. As human beings, our lives are similar. We encounter these struggles. We encounter these obstacles. It can all be very, very challenging. Yet it's the struggle that gives our wings their strength. It's a struggle that allows us to fly. And, and by wings, of course, we mean metaphorical wings, not right, right. Wings. But the, the, the metaphorical wings we need to, to overcome, to be of service, to follow God, to do whatever it is that we choose in our own lives to represent our higher purpose, it's often the struggle that gives us the strength to undertake these journeys. Lynn, I can't thank you enough, brother. That, you have a powerful message you have provided my listeners today. And like I said, I, I cannot thank you enough for taking time out of your crazy schedule to, to come on my show. Hey, before you get out of here, let everybody know where they can find you on uh, social media. You can. Uh, my, my name's pretty unique. It's uh, Ed Cressy, K-R-E-S-S-Y. I'm on Facebook. Uh, Facebook is the best place. And then I have a website. It's just www.edcressy.com. You can get uh, a copy of my book. And if you do... 10% of profits, of my profits, go to Defy Ventures, which is a nonprofit that delivers entrepreneur and employment training to currently and formerly incarcerated men and women. It's a wonderful organization I've been part of for five years. You'll be supporting Defy, extend second chances to women and men who not only need and deserve them, but more importantly, are willing to work very hard to get those second chances. We've also donated... 450 copies of my book to incarcerated people who are participating in transformational programs, mostly of employment and entrepreneurism. What my publisher and I are working on now is for every copy purchased, we're donating one to an incarcerated person. So you will be supporting that. And finally, you'll get a, uh, a great story. You'll get, uh, you'll get hope. You'll get belief that transformation, second chances are possible in your own life, in the lives of those you love. 
Well, Ed, that's outstanding. Like I said, I can't thank you enough for being on the show. I wish you much success in the future and we'll be praying for you because I know addiction never goes away. I know it's a fight each and every day. So thank you again. Thank you, William. And as always, guys, Wally, out. This podcast is part of the SJ Network. Go to s-j-network.com for more great podcasts and for contact information on publicist Steve Joyner.